Episode 241 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the UK-based South African restaurateur, television presenter, cookery writer and novelist, Prue Leith. In 1960, she moved to London to attend the Cordon Bleu Cookery School, then began a business supplying high-quality lunches, which became Leith's Good Food, a party and event caterer. In 1969, she opened Leith's, her Michelin-starred restaurant in Notting Hill, which she sold in 1995. In 1975, she founded Leith's School of Food and Wine, training professional chefs and amateur cooks. There have been many other great achievements, but Prue is probably best known for being a judge on BBC TV's Great British Menu for 11 years, before replacing Mary Berry as a judge on the Great British Bake Off in 2017, when that BBC series moved to Channel 4. This interview took place in 2019, when Prue was promoting The Lost Son, the third in a trilogy of novels and she began by telling me about her famous mother. Her name was Margaret Ingalls. Well, my, my name's Leith, obviously, so she was Margaret Leith, but she was known as Margaret Ingalls because she was South Africa's most sort of premier actress. She, she had a theatre company, and she was a top actress and a um, producer and all this bit. And she was really beautiful and very talented. But by the time she died, she was had been senile for 20 years. So mm. I, I live with the thought that... And my grandmother as well, her mother, mm. Mm. also went to Lally at about the age of 70. So I maybe that'll be... Uh, that, I don't know. You know everybody You're, who's got somebody in the family who has end up with dementia thinks they're getting it. Was she mainly a stage actress, or did yeah. she appear in any films that we might have seen? She did. Well, you know, funnily enough, I was filming some breakfast show called God, I can't remember what it's called but anyhow it went on all morning and we filmed it in the studio and they kept coming back to me I was cooking stuff and talking to people and and it just was a two hour program mm-hmm. and suddenly the director who was talking to me about my life I started talking about Peggy and he said oh well we've got a clip of your mum and there it was the most peculiar feeling because suddenly there was my mother uh, dressed um, uh, very sinisterly. It, it's a, it's a, it was a horror film called The Living Dead, I think. Oh. <laughs> there she was, sort of um, condemning people to death or something. It was really strange. Yeah. What but, was it like growing up with a famous mum? Did it, did it kind of teach you anything about handling fame and success? No, no, no. No, it didn't teach me anything about that, I don't think. But I think when I was a child, I wanted her... To, I was really hated the fact that she was an actress. I wanted her to be nice and cuddly and make cakes and come to the school fete. <laughs> and she never did any of that stuff because she was, you know, she was always in the theatre, so yeah. she, she never came yeah. to, to school. And, and if she did, she wore a big hat, which was incredibly embarrassing. <laughs> um, but then one day she came and gave the, all the senior girls a sort of workshop on theatre, and mm. she stood on the stage and she, she just... She did all Shakespeare. She started with Romeo and Juliet and then playing Juliet. And mm. she must have been 50 at the time. And she did Juliet and then she did The Nurse, you know, who's mm. a very old character. And then she did um, Horatio and Hamlet. And, and she was absolute magic. So I walked out of the hall, having been hiding at the back because I was mm. so un- unhappy about her coming. 
And then I walked out of the hall, you know, head high, saying, my mum's an actress, she can't possibly oh. come to the stage. <laughs> Didn't you study drama briefly? I did. I went to um, Cape Town University thinking that I was be an actress. But then I swapped to be thinking I'll do art, and then I, there was no good at that. So, mm-hmm. You know, I went on. I kept changing my mind. I think it's really difficult when you just leave school to know what you want to do mm. because you know nothing. To what extent have you needed or employed acting skills in your career, do you think? Having done a lot of acting as a child, I think it gives you confidence. I mean, I really enjoy it. If I'm, if I'm giving a talk and it's going well, of course, you get that buzz and you feel great. But I, I was never good enough to be an actress, mm. but I suppose it must have taught me something. Yeah. I suppose you know, working in front of a camera helps as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. To what extent was an interest in or talent for cooking in your family history? Absolutely none. My father, I don't think, knew where the kitchen was. Um, (laughs) My mother was the worst cook you could ever meet. I remember her making marmalade and burning it. And I think the only thing she ever cooked was baked custard, which she did really well. Somebody had taught her how to make a baked custard. So who cooked for you as a kid? We had... Because I was in South Africa, you don't have to be mega rich to have a cook in South Africa. We yeah. didn't in my day. And so um, we had a very good cook called Charlie, who was, yeah. um, he was a Zulu. And I could have learned to cook at Charlie's apron strings, but it never occurred to me or to my parents. So I didn't. Do you think if you'd stayed in South Africa that you'd have taken a different career path? Almost certainly. Because... It was going to France that woke me up to how interesting food was. I mean, when I was a child, food was, you never talked about food. Food was like, you know, religion, money, God, politics. You didn't, polite people didn't talk about. And so I never, we never talked about food. And when I got to France, absolutely everybody talked about food all the time. And I realized it, it, it was an interesting subject and that um, highly intelligent people did it. And... It was an absolute revelation to me. Do you still go back to Paris, to South Africa as well? I go back to both, yeah. Mm. I go back more to South Africa, Mm. um, but Paris I go to for fun. You've still got rallies in South Africa, have you? Yeah, I've got lots of rallies, and I've Mm. got a flat in South Africa. Mm. The Constance Spry cookbook. (laughs) Yeah, well, that when I went to to the Cordon Bleu, when I was training. That was in London, was it? In London, yeah. I I did the advanced (laughs) course. I shouldn't have been really doing the advanced course, but I couldn't afford the full course, and I managed to blag my way into the advanced one. And um, the, the sort of cookbook we all cooked out of was the Constance Spry book, and it's still today I refer to it every now and again. It absolutely has everything in it. And when I started writing my own cookbooks, when, when I opened Leeds Cookery School, I called my book the Cookery Bible. Because when we were learning at the Cordon Bleu, we all called the pink book the Bible. It's actually called the Constance Spry Cookery Book, but we all called it the Bible. And so I called my book Leeds Cookery Bible. Obviously, it had a lot of the things in it, you know, absolute classic French, mm. you know, many, many recipes that would be almost the same. But ours was obviously much more modern, modern cooking and so on. I hope this isn't a stupid question, but did you ever meet Constance Spry? No, it's not a stupid question. I never met her. She was dead by the time I met her, but I met her husband, right. who who had remarried and <coughs> married a woman called Valerie Perry. And I once went down to Wingfield, which was where they had a sort of um, cookery school for young women, like the Cordon Bleu, but it was a country country version of it in Wingfield. And I cooked for them over Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I was, so I was sending up 
a sponge cake every afternoon for tea. And it, in seven days, every time that the sponge cake would come back with a little note from Valerie Puri saying, you know, flour not properly incorporated, <laughs> you know, sugar, uh, too much sugar or yeah. something like that. And I, every day I was determined to get it better. And oh. on the last one, I thought, I know this cake is perfect. Sent it up, and when it came back, she turned it over, and I'd forgotten to take the paper off. The oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the paper was half pulled off. When I first interviewed you many years ago, you said, I only ever have cooked in a restaurant once, but I fell over and stabbed second chef in the leg, so nobody will cook with me in the restaurant anymore. <laughs> that was absolutely true. <laughs> it was in my own restaurant, too. <laughs> have you ever cooked since, or in, in a, a restaurant? In a restaurant, no. Wow. No. Did that put you off, that incident, then? Uh... Probably. <laughs> no, but I had never cooked very much. I mean, mm. I was standing in for the chef at that night. I've cooked a lot in, in um, my catering company, and I've taught a lot. But, um, no, I've just, just so happens that I've never been a restaurant chef. Mm. I mean, I've certainly helped occasionally, but... Did his leg ever recover? Yes, it did. He went, you <laughs> know, he got a... Um, I mean, I, you know, he was a nice guy, and yeah. he was totally... Um, sympathetic and he but we gave him quite a lot of money because he wanted anyway to go back to spain uh -huh. and so i think he um you know i felt compensation was due you know hmm. being stabbed in the leg by the boss is not nice <laughs> prior to bake-off what percentage of your cookery work was baking cakes very little i used to in my catering company we made wedding cakes all the time and of course we made lots of cakes which were puddings or cakes for teas and stuff so i did make cakes and i like making cakes but i never liked i did find decorating very elaborate cakes you know it just takes too long i'm not that kind of cook i'm really impatient i'd much rather cook um, savory stuff which is faster but I do, I've made more cakes since I've been on Bake Off than I have in the rest of my entire career. <laughs> Which one is your pièce de résistance? Well, I think the, probably the best cake that I make, and I make it really often, is um, an almond and oh. polenta cake. Oh, delicious. That, um, it comes out of the River Cafe cookbook. Oh, lovely. And I do variations on that. The, yeah. the Ruthie Rogers one is lemon. Mm. You know, it has about lots of lemons in it. When you took over the Bake Off, did Mary Berry get in contact and congratulate you or give you some advice? Uh, no, I rang her up to ask her for some advice, and she was very good. Um, oh. And I, I really just wanted to know what Paul was like. To, to <laughs> I, just, I just met him, and I thought yeah. he was... Um, I really liked him, and he'd been very encouraging to me and, and, and kind, you know. Yeah. He, he was lovely, and oh. um, so I rang Mary... I think I'd have done it even if she'd said he was terrible to work with, but she said he was hmm. lovely. And how much has Bake Off increased the amount you're recognised? Oh, hugely, hugely. I mean, I used to, with some great, great British menu, I would perhaps be stopped in the supermarket by one person if I, if I was shopping in a supermarket. And now I will probably be stopped by five people. And do they always want tips on, you know... No, more they want selfies. Selfies. <laughs> they don't want tips so much as photographs. But I, rather, I like it. A, I like having my picture taken, but mm. I'm so flattered by the fact that they want to take mm. my picture. It's really sweet. What's your policy about tasting cakes when you're on the show? Do you think, well, hang on a second, if I eat every blooming cake here, I'm going to be enormous? Yeah, no, I try to eat, I try to eat just what I need to, a teaspoon that will contain the icing, the filling, and the cake Right. in one teaspoon. And then, then you're all right, because even if mm. there are 12 people, 12 bakers, that's only 12 teaspoons. That's not terrible. But if you have, 
I mean, the Great British menu was much worse because you'd have four chefs doing four courses each and every course would be so complex that yeah. you'd have to taste the gravy and the veg and the fizzles and the God. jelly and the spherification. <laughs> and as there's apparently an obesity and diabetes epidemic in this country, how do you justify Bake Off? How do I justify Bake Off? Yeah, that's a question I've often been asked. Um, well, I think about it when I went, went on to it, and I don't know whether this is just self-justification, but I actually believe that most people come to cooking through baking. And if you look at the baker on the show, very few of them are, are very overweight. Most of them are slim. And I think that's because once you start baking, you become interested in cooking generally, mm. and you become more, you become interested in food and what food does to you. And so when people, once people start to cook themselves, they've got much better chance of not eating all that junk that makes you fat. Mm. And what do you say to people who say there's too many cookery shows on British telly? Well, uh, they wouldn't be there if people didn't watch them. No, I mean, true. ratings are everything. I mean, my, my own opinion is there are too many cookery shows on telly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I don't watch cookery shows on telly because they, for me, they go too slowly. You know, I, I think he's, well, I know what he's doing now. Why does he get on? But if you're learning to cook from telly, you need it to be slow. Hmm. I would prefer to them to be, there to be less cookery. But obviously, broadcasters are doing what the public wants, basically. Yeah, yeah. How long will you do Bake Off for, do you think? Oh, my great ambition is to at least equal Mary Berry. Oh, okay. <laughs> Mary did seven years. Yeah. And she started at the same age as I started, which was 76. Oh, so I'll have to go on like she did until she was 83 mm. or whatever. Who do you think would be a good successor for you eventually? Gosh, there's so many people. I think probably now I'd say Thomasina Myers mm -hmm. would be fantastic. Mm. Your signature glasses, tell us about those. I've always liked big necklaces and big glasses. And um, they've become a sort of signature thing because, of course, I'm on the telly so much. Mm -hmm. So people notice them, but I've worn them for years. Um, the main ones I wear are made by an Israeli company called Ronit First, R-O-N-I-T, First, F-U-R-S-T. And Ronit is an artist, and she pan paints frames, glasses frames. How long have you had glasses for? All your life? Um, I've had them since I was about 40, I think. Nearly half my life. And how long have you had this type of glasses that you, that you wear, these signature glasses? Well, I only discovered Ronit first about 15 years ago, I think. I think I was on the Great British menu when I started wearing these. I wondered if perhaps a PR person had said to you, you need a gimmick, Prue. No, 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 not a, absolutely not. <laughs> but, but if you've got a good idea, tell me and I'll maybe... Adjust. No, I, I, no, absolutely not. I, I think, you know, I honestly think your best hope of um, staying sort of out of the troll's sights is just to be genuine and to be yourself. Mm. I mean, yes. I think there is a danger that they'll still have a go at you. But... You can't, you can't have gimmicks, you can't start um, doing things that are not you, just because it might give you another column inch, you know. Prue, how is your eyesight without glasses? Oh, I can't see at all, it's hopeless. Really? Well, I mean, I can see, but they're very focal, because both, both mm. my long sight and my short sight are pretty hopeless. I mean, Did I think I have three, for, for readers, I have 3.5, which is quite bad. Did you um, think of having laser eye surgery? 
my son's had that. Mm. I don't know. Um, I haven't. No. I, I would not feel right without my glasses. Mm. I wouldn't feel like me. <laughs> I don't. You know, I think even if now, even if I could see perfectly well, I'd wear, the, I'd wear glasses. Some people do now. Have you ever been hit in the eye by anything you've been cooking? No, but I've been hitting the eye by a rose. Oh. <laughs> you know, with thought, rose thought. God, that must have no, hurt. Well, it, didn't, it did hurt, but there's yeah. not too... The thing is that if, if, if opticians look at my eyes, they always mm. say to me, you know, you've got an injury there, you know, mm. a bit of a torn iris or something. Has a firm like Specsavers offered you your own range of glasses? Um, Specsavers haven't. Um, Specs actually, we did talk. I did talk to Specsavers about it. I would like to have a range of, of glasses sometime. Mm. Tell us about John, how you met him. Well, I met him in a friend's house, you know, having a drink. That was seven, eight years ago. That was just a few miles from here. Mm -hmm. Would you say you were looking for love at the time? Absolutely not. My husband had been dead for 12 years. Mm -hmm. I was really good at being on my own. I used to say things like, who, who wants crumbs in the bed again and have to, having to come home in time for supper and, <laughs> and having to ring up and apologize for being late on the, on the later train. And, <laughs> you know. But what I did miss was that sort of companionship thing. Yes. And so when I met John, it was much more than companionship. I thought, my God, this is a delicious-looking fellow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so it just shows you you can love, you can do love it. You know, at the end. Do you think it shows also that uh, it's true what they say, that when you're not looking for love, it can happen to you? I think that's absolutely true, yeah. And how amazing is it to find this amazing love at this time in your life? It's just brilliant. And, I mean, I've been so lucky because it's not just John. I've just, I've got health and, I've, you know, my, my books are selling and my, um, I'm doing bake-off. I'm just having a great time. Hmm. I'm working jolly hard. But then I've got the energy to do it, and I'm just so lucky. I just feel people keep saying to me, you know, aren't you clever? Isn't it amazing? I mean, I'm not clever. It's If you're healthy and lucky, it's not talent. It's not a talent to be healthy or to be energetic or to be optimistic. You're born with these things. Yes, you do appear to have had a, a, a fantastic new lease of life professionally. Do you think that's yeah. come from this new lease of life personally? I don't know. I mean, I th certainly think that, that general happiness makes one optimistic, and maybe that may, that sh shines through. But I've always been pretty optimistic. I mean, long before. You know, I mean, I maybe because I've always been happy. You know, I had a really good first marriage with my husband. Mm -hmm. I absolutely adored him, and I had I had every reason to be lucky. You know, we live in a lovely place. We've got great children. I mean. If I'm not careful, I can sound really smug. <laughs> Do you have any retirement plans? I don't, except that I, um, John and I talk about one day having a house together. And because at the moment he has a house of his own, and he he stays in mine, but then all his clobber is mm. in his house, which is brilliant. Which means he gets up, makes me a cup of tea, disappears, <laughs> and does his he does his laundry mm. and mows the lawn and does everything away. Mm. And then turns up for lunch and then turns up for supper. And I think that's just fantastic. Uh, and I must say, a lot of the time he's out. out. He's, he's working as my head gardener. You know? yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very lucky. How old is the house? Um, well, the basement is about 15, sort of 16th century, 15-something. Mm -hmm. 
but the last bit went in. I put a couple of bedrooms on a few years ago. So <laughs> every every generation has messed it up. But the main part of it, I suppose, is Georgian. May we know how many bedrooms you have now? Well, I have four bedrooms, and then my son, because um, we've split the house in two, has another. Well, we we built on an extra two, so mm. four. And do you have like a super-duper kitchen because of your career? I do, I do. I have the best room in the house, which was the dining room, and it is huge. And, it, you know, it, it does staff lunch every day, and it, it, it works really hard. Mm. You have staff as well. I have staff is a nice word, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I have two secretaries because I do a whole lot of stuff. And then I have my husband who I regard as the chief gardener. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your children, if you would, please. My son is called Daniel mm-hmm. Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R, which mm-hmm. is my first husband's name. And he is a sort of policy wonk in the DCMS, now called the Department of Culture, Media, Sport, Communities and Digital. Mm-hmm. And he, his speciality is sort of prison reform. And he, he ran, a, ran a charity, which he still chairs, which he founded many years ago, which is all about... Um, Rehabilitation and the only working, connect. working with prisoners, only connect. Yeah. yeah. Didn't he used to work for David Cameron? Yes, he used to be his speechwriter. And uh, how was David Cameron? Did you have him round for dinner? Oh, we did have him once, I think. Yeah. Mm. We ca- he actually came round to play tennis, but we didn't play tennis because it was raining. <laughs> <laughs> how was he? Do you like him? Yeah, no, I, I know. I, I meet him quite a lot. He, yes, no, I like him very much. Mm. I think, you know, I just feel. In a way, he was before his time. You know, mm. the big society was very much what Daniel was interested in and, and helping him with. And mm. it was a great idea. But you know, as in so often happens in politics, you get overtaken by the mm. necessity to appease the Daily Mail, if I may say. Mm-hmm. So, and your daughter, Lee Dar? My daughter is Cambodian. Uh, she's a filmmaker, and she's married to a filmmaker. They live in London, and um, she's on the adoption trail at the moment, hoping to have to adopt a child, uh, because she she is herself adopted, so she's yes. always said she would adopt, and she, that's what she wants to do. Yeah. What films has she made that we'd, we might have known? Um, she made a really good um, documentary, which was a finalist for the documentary awards, which are called the Grierson, mm-hmm. Grierson Awards, called Belonging, which was about looking for her parents in... Um, in Cambodia, going back to yeah. revisiting the killing fields and all mm-hmm. that stuff, yes. and how she got out and so on. It's quite mm-hmm. an amazing story. And then she's made other stuff, shorts and little things. Uh, I think the belonging is the most notable thing mm. she's done. Five grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, five. That's two. There are two grandchildren of John's, two boys, and then my three. Right. Are you, so you've two just boys got... and a girl. Okay, and they're via Danny or Danny. Right. No, okay. Yeah. And how do you feel about being a grandmother compared to being a mother? Well, I'm a, I was a bad mother and I'm a bad grandmother. <laughs> I mean, in the sense of time spent with them. But I, I absolutely love it. I adore my grandchildren. I'm, I'm quite tough with them. I mean, they come down weekends and at um, holidays and stuff, and they all know that Nana, that's me, <laughs> won't have toys in her side of the house because we used to just let the children go bumping around everywhere. It's a sea of plastic crapola, frankly, all over the floor. And I was trying to cook with a train set underfoot and people playing nerves guns. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
so I decided that their, their, their toys have to stay in their half of the house. Mm. And, so, and they behave really well when they're with me, so it's good. And are any of them showing any interest in following your career? Well, they, they all like cooking. Mm. I don't know they're old enough to think about what they want to do when they're big. Mm. But I sometimes cook with them. I, I, all I do with them, I'm a, why I say I'm a bad grandmother is I love doing stuff with them. I'll garden with them. I'll do um, make necklaces with them or I will t- teach them to cook or we'll, have, mm. we'll cook stuff together. Or they can come and help me with whatever I'm doing. Mm. But what I'm really bad is doing what they want to do. You know, I don't like... Um, I mean, I, I just look and think of what their mother does with them endlessly. You know, it, mm. she will, they'll want to do braces on the lawn and she will time mm. them. And, and um, if they want to um, do a play, she'll rehearse them. And, mm. you know, I mean, she's just brilliant um, mm. at doing creative stuff with them. Whereas I seem to say, I make them fit into my life rather than me fitting into their life. Would you like them to take over the Leith Empire one day? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. I never wanted my children to, so why would I want my... And uh, how many restaurants do you have these days? I don't have any. I sold everything when I started writing novels. Okay. Which was in 95. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, actually writing is a disease. You should know this. Uh-huh, yep. You just can't not do it. That's right. Absolutely. Very satisfying, though, isn't it? Very yeah, creative. It is, it yeah. Is. And it's sort of necessary. Mm. Would you rather be remembered for your books than for your cookery and your? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, cookery is so transient. I mean, who mm. wants to remember forever? Mm. You know, a dish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the books are much more important, including cookbooks. I mean, I, I'm. I'm quite proud of my latest cookbook, for example, which is mm-hmm. so different from the cookery Bible and the and the ones I was writing 25 years ago when I had the school and the restaurant and catering mm. company. Because then I was writing a, in a quite a teacherly way. You know, this is the way to do it. This is the only way to do it and mm. get it right. And now people cook in such a different way. So um, this latest one, which is called Rue, it's got much more vegetarian stuff in it. Mm. It's got much more things that can be done in half an hour or things that you can combine by just buying good ingredients and putting them together and hey presto you've got a nice dish Mm. it's nothing like as um, sophisticated as my earlier stuff and do you want to live to a very ripe old age? I I do as long as I keep my wits about me but I I mean I spend a lot of time campaigning for dignity and dying you know which is the um, euthanasia a lot Mm. Mm. I really don't think other people should decide when you want to die. Why shouldn't you? It's your life. Do you do anything to keep fit? I have a personal trainer. Really? Yeah. Wow. And she and she comes and bullies me twice a week. She's really good. But um, I said to her, How, what's your oldest patient? Because <laughs> <laughs> your oldest, whatever they call them, not patients. <laughs> you know, customers, your oldest customers. And she says she she does exercises and stuff with a 93-year-old. Wow. She did say that she sometimes just has a cup of coffee with her when she doesn't feel up to it. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I, I mean, I don't like it. I hate exercising. Yeah. I like walking. Um, I used to ride a lot, but I can't do that now because I've got a crocked shoulder. I used to play tennis a lot, and I can't do that because I've got a crocked shoulder. And I used mm. to fish a lot. And all of these things require my shoulder to work, and my shoulder doesn't work. And so a lot of the work I do with um, Nikki is to try to strengthen this torn shoulder. And my great ambition is when I turn 80, I want to go 
fish on the neighbour for a week. Why is that? In Scotland? North, north of Scotland. Oh, OK. It's the most beautiful river. And I used to fish there. I have fished there. Hmm. And I want to do it again. Why is that your ambition? Uh, because, if, well, if, you've got to do something for your 80th birthday. And I thought <laughs> I'd go and have uh, my idea of, you know, a treat Bliss. would be to go yeah. fishing for a week. Yeah. But as it stands, I might be... I might be buying a week's fishing on the neighbour and watching other people fish, <laughs> 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 which I, I want to fish.